When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains scenes which are not suitable for children and which some listeners may find distressing. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. I was back. And I was back to run the business. It was more well-run, there was more drugs involved, was more quantity involved, there was more money involved. We went from selling 20 bags to 250 bags at a time, which is quite a lot of you selling. If you sell 100 of them a day, at 250 quid. Do you know what I mean? It's a lot of money. Then we were selling ounces, we were selling bars, we were even selling kilos sometimes. And then the Coke, we were knocking out one of our bags, 200 bags, quarters. The place had been completely revamped. The whole house had been revamped, revamped security-wise, all the electric fence, dogs on chains, cameras everywhere, lights everywhere. There was guns everywhere, brand new cars, a lot more. You could see there was a lot more money. The shed was full of stuff that we we used to rob. There was trays of vodka. It was a lot more expensive things. I knew straight away what, what I was there for. I wasn't there to... For me to go and see Marlo Hoyle and say sorry for doing something wrong, I was there to run, to run the run the show and do his job for him. Mm. He felt like he'd hit the big time now. He'd met Thomas, got rid of Marlo, and he needed me. And he knew that. He knew he could. He knew he knew would do it. Fortunately, it was so damn probably the only thing I was good at. I knew how to sell drugs. And then it was just every day, 24 hours a day. Christmas Day, I was selling heroin. Um, now, a three or four phones, never got any sleep, constantly giving me cocaine to keep me awake. I was going everywhere. I was going around. I was going to Clondalkin. I was getting heroin slapped to me legs, to me bodies, around me chest. He'd bring me up, we'd pick boats up, we'd pick jeeps up off the ferry and we'd bring the jeeps back to the shed and dismantle them and the whole jeep be full of drugs. It was just non-stop, it was just an operation. There was only me, him, Mandy, Mondo, Yunfle, and the house, he was only a Yunfle. So I was looking after him, I was running the drug business. He had me upstairs bagging all the time. All I had in my bedroom was a bed, a table and a chair. Two big weighing scales and bags. I had nothing else. That's when Henshin and his crew started coming over more. That's when we started knocking about with them. 
This is the witness, in his own words. Episode 6, The Gun. He idolized Henshin. Henshin had a good crew behind him in Clondalkin. They were violent, they were dangerous, they were murdering people. They were, they were just ruthless. They were absolutely ruthless, like. And they were vicious. There was about six or seven of them. And they were all, they used to come in convoy to Mitchell Sound College. And I mean, they'd all come in different cars. to would be six or seven cars. They were into armed robberies as well. They were robbing factories, garages, shops, the same things. But there'd be guns in the boots, there'd be machetes. They were just, even when we were robbing places, there was just violence. Do you understand? These were just off our rocker. These were full of coke, full of smack. And they were just, like, when they were going, like, I remember going with Clondalk and went in the car with them and Henschel and Brian and getting out and beating fellas up and all, like, and I mean, milling them, yeah, man, my machete crosses back, like, blood everywhere. Like, apparently chopped some fella's fingers off and everything. Like, just, they were just vicious, like, but they were big into shooting. They shoot you for nothing. But Brian and Thomas, they really got close and they were he, they were literally always together then. Thomas was always in the house, so we were always over with Thomas. He definitely became Thomas's right-hand man. But Thomas was in charge. Thomas was the... He was the boss. He was the one to bring the drugs in. He had the context. But, yeah, he was, he, he, he was fascinated with Thomas. Fascinated with Thomas. Idolised him. And when Thomas did jump, he just jumped out. Like, he just jumped. But once that, once he started knocking about with Henshin, he got really got obsessed with Thomas, and Thomas liked him, and I think it was the first time he felt like he fitted in. What did Thomas see in him? I think Thomas seeing the evil in him, and that he would do anything that he asked him. I think he's seeing. I think he's seeing that the evil yeah. Have you, ever, have you ever looked at Thomas Henson's eyes? I've looked, I look at him a lot, I can see him a lot. Pure evil, and that's what Kenny's. You look at the pictures you, you see in the paper, just look at the two of them, and that's evil. Like I wake up at night to them, to them pictures, like, in the middle of a pitch black room, I can just see them eyes looking at me. And that's what he's seeing, he's seeing evil, and he's seeing someone that would idolised them that would do anything that you want them to do. Do you think Brian was very aware that he was kind of um, considered like an, like an outsider? He was always an outsider because people didn't trust him. Everyone knew. Well, he claimed that he had friends in the guards and he tried to use his alleged friends in the guards to help other gangsters get off of charges. That's what he would say. This was his story. And that's the reason that he was kept around. If that makes sense. He thought he could be of use to them. Yeah. So, the, so basically, he had the guard on one side, this is what he was saying. We're looking for information on Marlow, Bradley's, Hench, and all the crews from Dundalkin. So they felt like there was a need for Kenny. And also, I remember when he started telling these, I was there when he started telling these people that he had friends in the guards. And they were all just looking as if to say, like, I can't believe he's just telling us this. And I remember the next day I used to say to him, you, you know what you said last night? Like, I remember him telling Anto Spratt one night, 
he was up on a charge and brought all them out of the sheds down the back, everyone party and Marlow, everyone was there sniffing coke. I see the coke makes you yap, makes you talk shit. And a lot of people end up killed because of it. And I remember him saying to uh, Anders, um, I might, might, might be able to help you out with that other thing you have coming up. And he was like, what do you mean help me out? He was like, I know somebody that might be able to do you a favour, if you do a favour for them. And that's when the trouble started, that's when people started to see the other side. People started thinking, well, there's, there's something not right there. And then people start saying it, people start calling them a rat and all, and that's when the problem started. That's when he got shot. In the middle of the night, before he blocked, kicked the window in, the front windows in, and came in and shot him in the back. And he was lying down in the back garden, dying, but the blood pissing out was back. And then I had to get rid of all the drugs and then the guns out of the house and hide them in the field and try and keep him alive while the ambulance came. He was lying on the ground and I'm keeping the stuff on him to stop the blood from pumping out of him. He would have died. So some, some people have said to me I should have let him die, but I'm just not that type of person, unfortunately. I remember going up to the hospital and he, he said to me, he was lying there in his silk pyjamas after being operated on. Same thing, all this fucking gangster shit, man. All these fucking velvet bleeding stuff and all, velvet pyjamas and all, slippers and everything. I think in this bleeding Scarface or something. He was, oh, he was real nice, he was in front of his man. All, they were all there, his family and all. And then when they left, he got me by the hand and called me over. And he says, where's the gun and the drugs? I says, I put them in the field, like you, like you said. And he, I said, but I couldn't save all the drugs. He says, what do you mean you couldn't save them? I said, some of them got wet, like, because I had to, I couldn't wait because the police were coming, he was just being shot, like. And he says, I'm going to fucking kill you when I get you home. And I was like, I'm just at the same in your life, like. But anyways, he got home. He was recovering in bed. And I was just straight back to business. My bro- I didn't have, I didn't realise Brian had, was smoking heroin until I moved back the second time. Until I'd been in my mouth. He, he wasn't smoking heroin before that. He was just big into coconut. When I came back, he was a junkie. Like. Mm. He wasn't a junkie when I'd left. So, he was, he, he was smoking the heroin on Tim for, then he was rolling, he couldn't roll joints, I could roll joints. He used to get me to roll on joints and he'd put heroin in the joints. And he'd smoke out of the joints as well. And then his habit just got worse then, and then they were shooting up there. That's when the needles started coming in. What we were going is he was going into town and all, he was going into this place, it was just off Gardner Street. And uh, he was going in, he was getting loads of clean needles packaged them. And what, he'd leave them somewhere in the room for Thomas, and then they'd have the belts on, and they'd be shooting up in the bedroom. And... Brian seems like someone who was all about control. Yeah. All the time. But then... When he starts on the heroin, heroin's really about the opposite, right? Heroin's, you just lose control. No. No, he got worse. He got, he got OCD, he kept cleaning, he kept, it was like a military operation. Once he was, if he wasn't out past out, he was completely like a military operation, he got worse. 
you got no, that's the wrong way. He got the control when he was on the heroin was much worse than it was before. Like literally, he'd make you sit at the dinner table for hours. You have to eat every bit off the plate. Like you'd have to ask, could you go to the toilet? All these things happened after he started going on the heroin. Do you think that was a reaction to maybe him being conscious that yeah. he wasn't always going to be in control if he was, you know, just passing out? Like? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when he was when he was when he was awake when he was active when he was when he when he wasn't compl- when he wasn't in the room smoking heroin or injecting heroin he was barking out orders and constantly never let you know like he never stopped it, the control got worse and worse so it was just more of a military thing he had the house clean as I said he wanted people to on the outside to think he was a gangster a businessman a professional he wanted the people to look at him different he didn't nobody knew and nobody knew he was smoking heroin or injecting heroin in the bedroom only me him his wife and the unflow the unflow well, I don't know why he but he didn't even know they were so and henching and stuff like that so henching wasn't judging him because he was doing it so you have to understand the people we were hanging around with from Kondalk and we're all doing the same thing where the Bradleys and Marlow and all they weren't users they do cocaine now but they wouldn't be sticking heroin in there and like that they would be too cute for that sort of stuff. Like, I have OCD, and I know what OCD is. Once you start smoking the heroin, he was like, you had OCD. He was going around the house all the time, cleaning, washing windows, he had inspecting my bedroom, looking under the bed, seeing if it's a bit of dust. Like, obviously there was going to be dust, there was cocaine and bleeding heroin everywhere, and he'd be like, there's some coke on that, like, what if the place gets raided now? I'm like, the house is full of fucking drugs in my head, I'm thinking. I'm not saying that to him. Oh, he put in my head, I'm thinking there's a shotgun downstairs, there's bleeding heroin, there's ounces of heroin in the room, there's scales all over my room, my fingerprints are everywhere. <laughs> and this was how crazy he got. He was just a lunatic, like. Everything had to be put away properly. The bed had to be made, like, not crease in it. Like, it was just crazy. The paranoia just got unreal. The cameras, the walls being built bigger. I think after getting shot, I think he realised there was a price on his head. Like there was never, we never had that many guns around the house before he was shot. Like there was three or four guns in the house at one time. Like we'd hang grenades. There was fucking pipe bombs in the field. The double barrel shotguns, like handguns. There was infrared bleeding goggles. Stuff everywhere. Like. But I think after getting shot and then realising the mistakes he'd made with Marlow, he kind of thought, well, I'm not going to be that stupid this time with the henching crew and the Kildalkin crew. He stopped using the so-called friends in the guard conversation, bringing that up. But all that was, I was told, never mention any of that in front of Thomas. We're in the big time now. Boom. Mm-hmm. And as I said to you, he, was, he had someone that accepted him for, finally met someone that accepted him on the level he wanted to be accepted. Mm. Yes, Thomas was supplying the heroin, but Thomas did kind of treat him as an equal because they were both smoking heroin, they were both banging up heroin, they were both smackheads. They were both junkies, unfortunately. Mm. And that's a sad thing to say, but that's what they chose. That's what they chose to do. And like, like his teeth, well, his teeth fell out one day. I never forget it. He come screaming, he was like, "Joey, Joey, come downstairs!" I'm like, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" I come downstairs and he had a tooth in his hand. 
like it front tooth I'm like what's wrong like and he's like yeah I'd have to fall on that one I said, I said that's from the heroin like and he's like oh, that and he hit me across the face he's like yeah judging me I'm not a junkie and I'm like well, that's why I fell out like and do you know how he put it back in I super glued it back into his mouth and instead it stuck like it was there when he got arrested still I got super glue he was lying on the table I put the super glue shoved it back into his mouth and I said there like on, on his wedding day on that night they spent the night in the car smoking heroin like we were all in the pub and I went out like and was like what, what are you doing like and he's in the car like I'm like everyone's asking where are you and he's sitting in the car like that's chasing the dragon like with the tinfoil to his mouth and this was the biggest this was Tony Soprano that was the biggest gangster in Dublin and, and everyone else was a smackhead and a junkie and everyone else was a rat and he couldn't get his head around why someone shot him. But I think he was the only person that couldn't get his head around that everyone else could. I think even Mandy could. Like when they were fighting and all, she used to be shouting, I wish they'd have killed you, I wish they'd never have saved your life. So, but um, yeah, we used to be sitting there looking at each other, he'd be running around the house and he'd, like, when he'd be off with nothing to coke, he'd be getting emotional and all. And he'd be crying, he'd be saying, I don't understand why they want to kill me and all, what have I ever done to anybody? You've coppered every fucker on the fucking fingers. You're meant to be, meant to be one minute you're Tony Sprano and John Gilligan, the next minute you're fucking rattling every fucker on fingers and Bally Moon and Blackstone. Make your mind up. You're a gangster, you're a smackhead. You wanted to be both. To the outside world, he wanted to look like a proper businessman, proper professional, proper family man. He had the nice car, the nice home, the big gates, the cameras, the security lights, the nice, he had the, the arm candy at Mandy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, everyone thought he was gorgeous. Like, to the outside world, that's why he wanted people to think he was a businessman. And then he had connections, obviously, all the way connections with Marlowe, Hench, and all the gangsters. But really, behind them doors, behind the walls, it was just pure drug ridden. Kip, all that happened was people taking drugs, shooting up, sniffing coke, drinking, people being abused, people being beaten, or a me, or a hoe. And that's, that's what it was. It was like hell behind that wall and behind them doors. It was just awful. So that day when... I mean, what's the first thing you remember about that day? When Them leaving. Yeah, I just remember them going. Um, I remember being given some coke and I was upstairs bagging in my room. I was bagging up heroin and coke, two scales. And um, the doors went in the shed and most of the time they usually told me they'd lock the door behind me, but they didn't. And all I remember then was them coming back and shouting for me to go down and I went down into the shed and the two of them were standing there pulling the clothes off them, the letters off them, the, the helmets, all the all the gear and washing themselves in the petrol and the torps of the petrol and the torps as well I think they had, not like a paint stripper. And um they told me, Brian told me to put put the stuff, get the stuff and put it in the stove. We'd stove at the back where we used to sit around at night time. And um, I 
put the stuff in the stove and start pouring it and black smoke started coming from the top of it and he started shouting at me you're doing it wrong you're doing it fucking wrong stop doing it and I was, I was like he told me to burn on burn he said yeah but it's making black smoke he said the neighbours of the guard I don't know why he said that that's what he said they were the woods so I threw water on top of it got it all out and I put it in I had to scrape it all out and put it into a bag then they called me into the kitchen they had me just going and wrapped in a bag and said to me go up to the field and hide it now get straight back and he walked me out to the gate so he basically walked me out to the field really but once I went through the ditch he couldn't see and usually I hid most of the guns around the front the front the fourth field because it was easy to get to in case that had happened in case there was trouble there was something about I just felt there was something wrong when he handed me the gun and there was something telling me not to put it because if I had put it in the front field I knew he would have found it and I don't know whether I'd done it without thinking or I kind of subconsciously not I kind of something, I felt something was wrong so for some reason I put it in the second field and I never put guns in the second field always cash and drugs in the second field the guns are always in the front field in case someone started trouble at the house so I could run and get a gun for them that's how it worked and when I hit it I hit it right down the ditch and I remember putting like little stones and like little twigs around it so I could remember where it was ran back to the house and told me they were shooting somebody checked the teletext And that's what we had back then, Teddy Texas. He went into his bedroom, which was in shock, really. And I turned on Teddy Texas and I said a man had been shot outside Cloverhill Prison, but I hadn't said he was dead. So I shouted in and I said, It says a man had been shot outside Cloverhill Prison, but I didn't say he was dead. I could hear him saying in the kitchen, he was saying, What are we going to do if he's not dead? And they were panicking, they were. They were, they were all just like, heavy breathing and they were all just drinking and smoking. and sniffing coke and they were like, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? And then, I don't know which one, it was, it was two teletexts, RT and TV3 at the time. And when I went on to the other one, I said, a man has died after being shot at a Cloverhill prison. And then once I shouted in and said that, I said, I said a man has died after being shot at a Cloverhill prison, and then it was just fucking horrendous. They were cheering, they were clapping, they were high-fiving each other. They, Thomas, was saying, Thomas was saying, it's my playground now, Brian. I run Clondalk and now I have it. This is my man on now, all this, all this stuff and all. And Brian was saying, did you see him jumping around the car? Like, it was like a fish when I shot him. He was a big fella, wasn't he? I was just like, what the fuck, like, that's happening. And he just told me, I was straight, he said, I have to kill him. And he said, I'm after killing your man, and I've done it once, and I've no problem doing it again if you tell anybody. And then it just started. I was just standing in the kitchen, and I was literally just sweat was pissing on me. I was shaking. They just kept saying, don't tell anybody. If you tell anybody, we're going to kill you, Joey. I'll blow your head off. I'll blow your mouth head off. Thomas never threatened me before. It was the first time he ever threatened me. Brian, I think he said something to me. Thomas trusts you. And then Thomas said, sit down. And I sat down at the table and he says, I'm telling you now, Joey, if you tell anybody about this, I'll kill you and your family.
then I, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether to leave the room. I didn't know whether I was allowed to leave the room. It was such an awkward situation. It was such an uncomfortable situation. I didn't know whether I was there to walk away. I didn't know whether to stand in the one spot. Then they started giving me a drink. Then they were like sniffling a Coke. And I, it was just adrenaline then running through my body. And then they start banging up then. They start fucking shooting up heroin and all. And then they were all falling asleep and goofing off. And then the phone started ringing the work phone. I went upstairs lying on the bed. I was lying on the bed and I was just staring at the scene. I was thinking, what am I going to do? Like, do I, to... I didn't know what to do. I was thinking about your man. I, like, I, I never seen, I, could, I didn't know what Jonathan looked like. So I was trying to imagine in my head what he looked like. So everything was just kind of running through my head. I didn't know what was happening. And I was just kind of, yeah, I was just kind of in shock for a few days. Um, he took me out to the shed that night. Battered me and abused me. I think he's done that to frighten me though. I think that was kind of a warning. Just to let me know, like. Yeah, that's when it, it just started getting, everything went really bad then. Like, everything that had happened before then had happened Ten times worse. All I could think about was Jonathan dying, and then I just thought I accepted. I just thought, oh, "Am I going to die? They're either going to kill me." I thought, "There's no way they're going to let me use this, keep this secret. Like, there's no way they're going to let me walk out here alive, or let me go back to my mouth, or let me ever leave them, knowing the secret." I just couldn't. I couldn't picture, it. and I kind of thought in my head, every person I've met. Marlow, Fapus, all of them, none of them would have let me walk away. Being that young and being... I just couldn't, in my head I was thinking, there's no way anyone would let me walk away. So I just accepted that I was either going to die, they were either going to kill me, or I was either going to kill myself with the drugs, like, so... Yeah, everything just got changed then. Everything just got real nasty. He was trying to control every aspect of my life. That was it then, that's when I thought I needed to get out here. And that's when I made the plan. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.